Welcome to Round Trip Death and part two of Dr. Yvonne Kaysen's interview. If you haven't yet heard part one, I recommend starting there. That's episode 313. Now let's go ahead and jump right back into it. Everybody that's been patient with us so far deserves to hear about the plane crash. <laughs> I want to hear about the plane crash. Well, my next near-death experience, if we're going in the sequence of my life, uh, happened in uh, March of 1979. And I was a young medical doctor at that time. I was, had, I was in the final year of my residency. And I had been assigned to work in a remote northern community in Ontario with the Native Indian community. And I was assigned on this particular day, March 27, 1979, to go on a medevac, a medical evacuation to take a critically ill uh, patient from the small little community hospital where we were and to fly her to the lar closest large city, which was Winnipeg, which was maybe a one hour flight by plane away so that she could go to the intensive care unit where they had more uh, advanced facilities to look after her medical condition. And medevacs back then were not generally done by helicopter. This, this particular medevac was done with a twin engine airplane, a small twin engine airplane called a Piper Aztec. So the plane was loaded, um, you know, the patient on her stretcher was loaded into the, the plane and she was placed that the second and third row seats behind the pilot had been removed and her stretcher was there. I was in the second row on the, the opposite side behind the empty co-pilot seat and I was tending to her airway. She was intubated and I had to bag her and there was oxygen running in and then the nurse was sitting in the seat behind me, the, the third row seat, and she was tending to the patient's IV. She had IVs in both arms. And then that was the back of the plane. So that's how big the plane was. It was a tiny little plane. So we flew uh, from Sioux Lookout and we were flying to Winnipeg. Now, um, we flew into bad weather technically a blizzard. And so the plane was being buffeted, you know, really strong by the winds, et cetera. And if you've ever been in a propeller plane, and particularly when you're that close, I must've been like six feet from this engine and maybe 10 feet from that engine. They're loud. You really hear the noise of the propeller motors. And um, so I'm tending to the patient. All of a sudden I can hear a change in the sound of the motor of the engine to the right. And I can see that the propeller is now sputtering to a stop. It's pup, 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 and it's sputtering to a stop. And I think, like, what's going on? So I, I shout up to the pilot, what's going on? What's going on? And you could see he's like, you know, pulling levers and wrestling with the plane and trying to do something. And he manages to get that right engine going again. But, you know, I'm beginning to think, uh-oh. <laughs> anyway, he got the engine going again. I started tending to my patient. And then a few minutes later, I heard another change in the sound of the engine. So I look up and this time it's the left engine and it's sputtering to a stop. The right engine was going, but the left engine was now sputtering to a stop. So I shouted out again to the pilot, what's going on? What's going on? And again, he's like, you know, doing all sorts of stuff here with his controls and, and trying to steer the plane because, you know, he's only got one engine. We're having really bad winds. We're in a snowstorm. And I noticed that he had lowered the altitude of our plane. So we weren't as high as we were before. And I also noticed that 
he was trying to aim us towards a, a frozen lake rather than most of the, the ground is heavily forested, fully forested up there. He was trying to point us towards the lake. And then the right engine stopped. So we had we had no engines. And we're, we're going down and he's trying to control the plane and we're being buffeted like crazy. And my first reaction, it was like a reflex just came out of my heart. This thought was, I had intense fear and panic because we were obviously crashing. Out of my heart came the thought, oh God, help, I'm going to die. And, you know, it was then that must have been close enough to a prayer, good enough for God. Because it was actually then, before the plane crashed, that my near-death experience started. And what happened was, all of a sudden, this force field of peace started descending upon me. And it was literally pushing down all my fear. And instead, I started feeling this intense peace and intense calm. And then I heard an inner voice, and I'd never heard an inner voice before this day. And it had a masculine tone. And this inner voice said, be still and know that I am God. I am with you now and Always. And with those words, this profound, mystical feeling of safety and calm came over me. And I was still fully alert. The plane had not crashed yet. I, I turned in this profound state of consciousness and I started comforting the patient because she had regained consciousness and she was looking at me with really frightened eyes. And I remember looking into her eyes and somehow I knew in this profound state of consciousness that I was in, that everything would be okay, whether we lived or died. And I started comforting her and saying, honestly, from my heart, it's okay. Everything's going to be all right. And the pilot, very, very heroically, he was awarded afterwards, managed to guide the free-falling plane. He was trying to do a guided belly landing onto the ice. He brought the wheels up so that the plane was just on its belly and avoided crashing into the trees. And he was trying to get us onto the emergency belly landing on the ice. Um, and in fact, he did, and we would have been fine. We were skidding across the ice, and we would have been fine if it, if the ice had been thick enough, but it was not. No, no. And then what happened was that when the plane finally came to a stop, it very quickly tilted, nosedived, and sunk into very deep water. So we had to get out of the plane while it was sinking. I tried with all of my might to pull the patient out. I was not able to. I got the, the nurse out. The pilot went out his week and the plane went down. And unfortunately, we lost our patient with the plane. And then I found myself wearing heavy winter clothes, like a heavy parka, heavy boots, heavy winter clothes. I'm in water in a lake and the closest shore is about 200 yards away. It's an island and there's open water with a fast moving current and a blizzard above us chopping up the water between me and the closest land. 
And um, the place I crashed, we crashed, believe it or not, its actual name is Devil's Gap. And it's called the Devil's Gap because of the strength of the current there, that the water is very treacherous, both in the summer and in the winter, the ice doesn't freeze up there. So I would have had to swim the devil's gap, I later found out, in order to get to the closest shore. And the voice in my head spoke again, and it said, swim to shore. Now, you know, I was a novice when it came to spiritual experiences, (laughs) and I remember very clearly that I I mentally argued with this voice. No, I'm not going to swim to shore. I took lifeguarding. They tell you in a boating accident, stay with the boat. Don't try to swim to shore. It's too far. You're going to drown. No, I'm not going to swim to shore. The pilot was uh, shouting, try to get on the ice. Try to get on the ice. So I turned away from looking at the shore. I swam towards the closest ice, and I tried to get on the ice. And the voice repeats, swim to shore you know and I'm again I ignored it and I'm trying to get on the ice but the ice was too thin and every time I tried to get on as soon as my arm's length of weight was on the ice it would break and sink and I was getting more and more tired and more and more cold because this is sub-zero weather in a blizzard and my clothes were like lead weights you know sopped with water now trying to pull me down into the deep water. And the voice repeats a third time, swim to shore. (laughs) And finally, I surrendered to that higher wisdom. I told the other two, the ice is too thin. We're going to have to try and swim to shore. And I started swimming to shore. Now, it was a really hard and a really difficult swim. Like to this day, like for example, the pilot said to me recently, we're still in touch that he was amazed that I was able to make it to shore because it was so far and such a difficult swim. But through the grace of God, eventually I made it. But I went down several times in the process of swimming to shore. And then I would was struggle and struggle and struggle and kick and kick and kick with all of my might to try and bring my mouth above water again to get some air into my lungs. And then then I would, would, would continue with swimming. Anyway, somewhere in the process of swimming to shore is when my near-death experience deepened. And what happened was all of a sudden, I heard this loud sort of rushing or whooshing sound, like, and suddenly I found my point of perception whisked out of my body, and I was now 25 or 30 feet above my body. Now, my body was not dead or unconscious. I was still actively swimming to shore. So it was actually more complicated than that. It's It's actually that my consciousness was two places at the same time. And and I compare this to a split screen TV because now everyone's very familiar with what split screen TV is. And it was like the little image of the corner of the split screen TV was the little part of my consciousness that was still in my body that was desperately striving to swim to shore. But the big screen image, most of my consciousness at the same time, was out of my body, up above my body. And then the bulk of my consciousness went higher. And I entered this realm that was filled with love and light. Now, many people talk about the white light realm, and it was a white light realm. But for me, by 
far the most powerful aspect of where my consciousness went was the love. The love, the intense, powerful, unconditional love. This was the most beautiful, perfect, powerful love that I had ever experienced in my life. I felt like I was home. This was where I belonged. While I was in that loving light. I mean, for an instant, when I first got there, I did see a face of light. And then it just sort of faded into that sort of almost like cloud-like listening periphery in the realm of light. And I just knew things. I knew things in my being without it being spoken or explained to me by anyone or words or any. I just knew things. And, and what I knew, what I understood when I was in that, I'll call it realm of light, was I knew that this love that I was experiencing, this incredible, powerful, unconditional love, was the love of the higher power, or what I had been raised to call God. And what I was experiencing God or the higher power to be was not at all what I had been taught. <laughs> it was not an old man with a long white beard sitting on a throne judging me. Have you been good or bad? Which is my concept before the experience. But what I was actually experiencing was that God or higher power, whatever word we want to use to describe it, the loving force behind the universe is exactly that. It is a incredibly loving force which is interpenetrating and underlying all of creation, all of past, present, and future, infinitely intelligent, that, that we are all loved unconditionally by this incredible loving force. And I also realized something else while I was in that realm of love and light. I also realized that what I think of as me wouldn't die if my physical body down below died, but that I would live on here in the light. And so I felt completely at peace, complete joy, complete love, completely home. And so I actually watched with detachment and a little bit of curiosity to see ah, what's going to happen to that body down there. Is she going to make it? Is she not going to make it? And it really didn't matter to me because I was feeling home. And I knew that I would live on regardless of whether my body down below lived through this plane crash situation. The smile I see on your face telling that story says more than even the words do. Mm -hmm. I can tell that you remember exactly what that felt like, and it was amazing. Yeah. Talking about it brings it back. I start feeling it again, feeling that love, feeling that joy. It looked like my body was not going to make it to shore. It looked like I was going to run out of steam about 20 feet from shore. And at that moment, which looked like it was going to be my moment of death, it was like the split screen split. And suddenly most of my consciousness went back into my physical body. And I remember, you know, I'm, I'm 20 feet from shore. I'm just exhausted, can't swim anymore. And I'm about to go down. 
for the third time. And I remember, it's amazing what you think in these situations, but I remember, clearly remember thinking, oh, it's true. You do drown the third time you go down. (laughs) That's what I thought. And I was just preparing to just completely surrender to death because I had nothing to fear. I knew I was just going to be in the light and that was just fine with me. (laughs) But then when I looked through my physical eyes, I saw that the current was carrying me very, very rapidly to the right. And that there was a tall pine tree that had fallen off the shore of the island into the water. And that the current was actually carrying me right towards this pine tree. And in the state of consciousness that I was in at that time, it actually looked to me like there was an etheric hand of light superimposed on that tree. And it was reaching out to me to to rescue me. And that all I had to do was like swim one or two more strokes and my hand would hit that tree. And so somehow I was given the strength to swim those last two strokes. My hand hit the tree and then I pulled myself along the tree onto the shore, climbed up on, you know, over the shore ice onto the island, shouted out to the other two, swim to shore, you could make it. And I huddled with my fingers in my armpits as I've been taught to do when you're cold and my consciousness floated out of my body. Yeah, you, you still should have died of hypothermia at that point. Absolutely. We were dying. We were dying of hypothermia. There's a, a long convoluted story to the rescue, which I'm not going to say today. If people want to read it, they can read it in my book. But I'm going to go to me coming out of the the, the light and um, the after effects because I think that's important. Let me just say there was a whole series of divinely orchestrated coincidences, if you believe in coincidences, that led to our rescue, that where we'd swum to had could only be rescued by helicopter, and there's normally no helicopter, but by coincidence, there was one there nearby that day, set down five miles from where we crashed, and the mayday from the plane, nobody could hear that unless they were directly overhead because of the hills and because of the heavy snow, but guess what? There was a plane directly overhead that picked it up a regularly scheduled Air Canada flight. They radioed the message down. The helicopter pilot got the message, knew where to look for us. I mean, just all these pieces came together leading to the rescue. They risked their lives in rescuing us. They sort of half dragged, half carried me to the helicopter after they finally found us. And, um, you know, I watched from above as they landed the helicopter on the the driveway of of the nearby hospital and the emergency staff, they wheeled out the stretchers from the emergency department, put me on a stretcher, wheeled me into the emergency department. And I'm I'm floating above my body and I can feel myself because I was dying of hypothermia. You are correct. My, My body temperature was so low. I watched as a nurse tried to take my temperature with a regular thermometer and she was puzzled because she wasn't getting a reading. That was because my temperature was below the bottom reading on her thermometer. And I could feel my consciousness drifting further away from my body. And I knew I was dying, but... I was fine. I was in the light. I was in the love. I was feeling joy. I was feeling peace. And I was surprised to hear a voice say, boy, could I use a hot bath. And I was even more surprised to discover it had come out of my physical body because I hadn't been thinking of saying that. 
I don't know if an angel spoke through me or whatever happened, but somehow these words came out of my mouth. And it turns out that's exactly what we needed. We needed to be warmed up rapidly. My body needed to be submerged in hot water to reheat rapidly so that I wouldn't die of, of hypothermia. And when those words came out of my, my mouth, the nurse, one of them said to them, gee, maybe that'll help them. Let's take them down to the physiotherapy department, put them in the hot whirlpool bath. And so they did. And so when they put my body into the hot whirlpool bath and my body started being reheated, that is when I felt my consciousness re-enter my body. And what that felt like was like this. It was like how they depict on TV with a genie being sucked into a bottle. I was in this big expanded space above and abruptly through the small like opening at the top of my head, I was sucked into the much smaller confines of my body. And then I was back. And I remember I was sitting in the whirlpool bath, rubbing my completely frozen hands. I had no feeling at all against my legs in the hot water going, I'm back, I'm back, I'm going to live, I'm going to live. So I don't know if they wrote in the chart, patient, confused or something, but uh, I, I was back and I knew that I was going to live. Did the other people with you have similar kinds of experiences? Um, the pilot told me no, that he did not. Um, and the nurse, I don't know. She has passed away now, but I always suspected that she had. But, you know, you have to remember, back when this happened, there was no vocabulary for these sorts of experiences. I mean, near-death experiences weren't known and neither were mystical experiences vaguely, you know, it only happened to saints thousands of years ago. Um, and it took me years to even have the words to describe what it was. It was only around 1990 that I actually, when I met Ken Ring for the first time, I said, uh, let me backstep a little bit. I did was I was trying to find out a name for my experience after it happened. The first group of people I talked to, of course, were doctors. I'm a doctor. I know lots of doctors. So I talked with a lot of my doctor colleagues. You know, have you ever heard of anything like this? I didn't even have a word to describe this experience. And I remember my doctor colleagues, I mean, they all knew that I was very credible and I was a very good doctor and they didn't think I was crazy. So they came up with a hallucination hypothesis, you know, that I was hallucinating due to a low blood sugar. I was hallucinating due to an electrolyte imbalance. And like that totally did not sit with me that no, 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 no. You knew it wasn't physical. Uh, no, this was profoundly impactful, positive, spiritual experience with powerful after effects. Life, it is not a, a low blood sugar. So I kept searching for a word and I went to somebody in Toronto at that time who's, who claimed to be an expert on near-death experiences. So I asked him, you know, could this have been a near-death experience? And what he in fact said to me was, well, did you see a tunnel with a white light at the end? And I said, no. <laughs> and then he said, okay, were you clinically dead? And I said, no, I don't think so. I think maybe the closest was when I was maybe unconscious, 
But in fact, you know, it started before the plane even crashed, right? And then, no, this is definitely not a near-death experience. I mean, I didn't know any better. And in fact, back in the 70s, they used to think you had to be clinically dead in order for it to qualify as a near-death experience. And so I thought, okay, well, it's not a near-death experience. I, I don't believe it's hallucination. So what is it? So I kept searching, and this was the beginning of my life being half in the closet and half a spiritual seeker. I was trying to understand what on earth has happened to me. And the best word I found for many years, one of my medical colleagues, who's a very devout Christian, when he heard my story, he said to me, you know, Yvonne, I think you've had a mystical experience. And it was like, ding, the light went off. Finally, I found a word that fit. So for almost 10 years, I called this my mystical experience that happened in the plane crash. But as I started researching and learning more about mystical experiences, psychic phenomena, kundalini awakening, near-death experiences, the whole gamut of what I now call spiritually transformative experiences, I started thinking, you know, I think it was a near-death experience. I think they need to expand their definition of near-death experiences to include ones like mine that start before you're dead, when you're facing death, and when you're close to death, that you don't actually have to be dead to have a near-death experience. And I met uh, Kenneth Ring, one of the founders, Dr. Kenneth Ring, one of the founders of IANS in 1990. Uh, when I was speaking on Kundalini, actually, at a conference in California, you know, I'm much younger than him. And I sort of, you know, brazenly drumming up all my courage, I told him about my experience. And I said, you know, I really think that you researchers need to broaden your definition of near-death experiences, because I think mine was a near-death experience. And I think it can happen to people when they're close to death, too. And Ken Ring, he and I become great friends. Uh, he burst out laughing and he said, Yvonne, you are absolutely correct. You know, we've come to the same conclusion too. And we have expanded the definition of near-death experiences. So he confirmed, yes, Yvonne, you are correct. That was a near-death experience. And to me, it's comforting to know that a lot of people have one of these experiences in the middle of something traumatic, like as the plane is going down, um, I'm thinking of someone I interviewed recently that they were in a car accident where the car slid off a road off a cliff and in midair as this thing's flying through the cliff. To me, that's the scary part of dying, right? That's when she was taken out of her body and didn't have to experience that trauma. Yeah. Uh, we don't know how often that happens to people, but we know that it does happen. Do you have any any further depth on that? Well, I too have heard other stories of people having full-blown near-death experiences that start before the trauma. Right. And it's it's almost as if, you know, in the wisdom of the divine plan, it's just like a protective mechanism. Yeah, it's like you don't need to go through that trauma no, for some don't. reason. I mean, one story that just leaps to mind is uh, two that leap to mind, and I share them in, in my, my book, Touched by the Light. One is a Vietnam War veteran told me that, um, you know, they were in some battle, whatever, and a grenade landed right in front of them. 
And he, you know, he thought that's it, you know, it's going to blow up and I'm, I'm, I'm a goner. He immediately went into a full-blown near-death experience. He went out of body. He found himself back in America, looking at his family, you know, sleeping at their beds at home. He starts going into the white, white light. And then all of a sudden, somebody, one of the soldiers starts nudging him. Hey, buddy, you know, the grenade didn't go off. It was a dud. And so his whole experience happened because he thought he was going to die. Another battle example was someone who fought in World War II. An elderly gentleman told me that he'd been a, a pilot, a fighter pilot in World War II, and his plane had been shot down. And there were, I guess, two pilots in the plane or a pilot and a co-pilot or something. And he, you know, plane was spiraling out of control and they were going down to the ground and he thought it was all over. And he too, he went into a full-blown near-death experience. He went out of body, you know, had life review. He starts going into the light and then all of a sudden, his co-pilot friend manages to pull the plane out of its nosedive, and so they never crashed. This has absolutely convinced me. In my book, I call it the facing death, near-death experience. And of course, now we know facing death or facing severe trauma uh, can absolutely be a trigger for a full-blown near-death experience. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. All right, before we go too long today, but thank you for all of this. Let's hit on your next couple of experiences. All right. Well, my next uh, near-death experience, I, I do, before I go on to that, want to say that that near-death experience in 1979 changed me completely. I mean, I think it's real important to say that, that the after effects were profound. And um, my loss of fear of death, my changing in terms of being much more open spiritually and accepting of people with diverse spiritual paths because I just understood that all spiritual paths are all just like different roots up a mountain from different angles. We're all trying to say, understand the same one truth, the same one higher power underlying the universe. So I became much less dogmatic, much less judgmental, much more tolerant. But I also became more capable of forgiving and and um, more capable of setting healthy boundaries around me. It was like the experience had a, a growing up effect on me. You know that that um, childhood had ended, and I was now an adult. Profound loss of fear of death, as I mentioned earlier. But I will go on now to my next experience. Back then, by the way, there was sort of this concept that was prevalent that one only had one near-death experience in one's lifetime. And that, you know, then it would have all these after effects, all these impacts, your life would be changed. And it would be like this beacon that you referred to and remembered and reflected upon. And that's how it was for many years. I was certainly never thinking that I would have another near-death experience. Well, and many people are that way mm -hmm. and have the one. Mm -hmm. Many others have more than one. We're now discovering, and that's only been a recent discovery. But yeah, so it was very, very much to my surprise and totally unexpected when in 1995, this was February 1995, I had another mystical near-death experience. And this time what happened, I was flying on a major um, Air Canada flight from Edmonton to Toronto. I had been there 
my my book on uh, spiritually transformative experiences, my first one, A Farther Shore, had been released in 1994. And so I was there talking about uh, spiritually transformative experiences and near-death experiences. And I was flying home after this weekend of um, presentations. I'm sitting in this big Air Canada jet. I had a window seat over by the wing. And we flew into a blizzard. And so there was a lot of turbulence and we all had to put on our seatbelts. And I remember thinking, oh, yeah, you know, when I had my plane crash near death experience, we flew into a winter storm, too. And then I'm looking out the wings and I'm seeing ice forming on the wings. I go, hmm, ice forming on the wings. Because when they done the inquest into my um, my plane crash in 79, they said that ice forming into some part of the motor is what had caused the motors to dysfunction and 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 the plane eventually to crash. And I thought, oh, that's sort of like what happened in my plane crash. Interesting. Yeah, interesting. And so then I'm, uh, I decided, okay, I'm going to uh, read the newspaper that I had gotten from the, um, the, the flight attendant at some point. So I pick up the newspaper. I'm starting to read the newspaper. And I'm looking at the date on the newspaper. And clear as can be, it says March 27th. I went, What? I am flying on March 27th because March 27th was the day of my plane crash. I, I, what am I doing flying on March 27th? How, I'm thinking, how, how could I not have noticed that I booked a ticket for March 27th? And, and I'm, I'm looking at the date and clear as could be, I could see March 27th and in shock, I'm staring at it. And then all of a sudden, it's like the letters swirled and then it shifted to read what it actually said on the paper, which it said February 27th. And it's like, oh, you know, I breathe a sigh of relief. Like, why am I having all of these reminders of the, the plane crash? And remember earlier on, I'd also been thinking, gee, I wonder if we're above, because it had been an Air Canada flight from Edmonton that had caught the emergency message when we crashed. I wondered, I wonder if we're going to be flying over that spot where I had the plane crash. So like all of these thoughts, which is very unusual, I would not normally get these sort of thoughts when flying, but I now think they were sort of like maybe premonitions or warnings or getting me prepared that guess what, you're about going to have another near-death experience. Anyway, what ended up happening is the plane, the storm was really, really bad. Finally, we, we seemed to make it to the Toronto area. The plane was descending, trying to make a landing at Toronto International Airport. And I'm looking out my window thinking, I'm going to be really relieved when we safely land. And, you know, we couldn't see the ground for the longest time. But finally, because the clouds were so low and the storm and everything. And finally, we'd broken below the clouds and I could see the lights of the runway ahead of me. And then all of a sudden, it was like the, the pilot had um, jammed the, the flaps on the wing in the opposite direction out of landing. He's trying to take off again. And he's the engines are suddenly screaming. And he's clearly trying to abort the landing. And the plane is shaking like crazy with the intensity of, of him trying to abort the landing. And people start crying and people start throwing up. And, and, and um, immediately the thought popped in my mind, oh, today is the day that I'm going to die. I was meant to survive that other plane crash, so I would do all the research and the work that I've done in the last 16 years. But today, this is the plane crash that I'm going to die in. 
over these years, and as I've been deepening in my spiritual practice and studied yoga and meditation, all these things, I had learned that the most auspicious way to die is consciously. And so I decided to die consciously. And what I did, I immediately went into prayer and meditation, shut my eyes. My only worldly attachment was my son, who was still quite young at that time. I prayed for the good Lord to look after my son. And then I consciously went into death. I went into meditation and I was trying in my mind to go as high and as deep as I could to get back to that realm of light that I had been in in 1979. And what happened is I immediately found myself out of body. So I was out of body and this force was pulling me rapidly up through this dark expanse of space. And this time what was different from my previous near-death experience is before it was just happening to me, right? Like I was like, oh, wow, what's happening? Whereas this time I was working with it. I was swimming with the undertow. I wanted to get to the light where I was being pulled. So it's like my consciousness was working with it. I was striving with all my might to go up, up, up to that light. And I was being carried towards that light. And then all of a sudden I had a life review. And this is the first time I'd ever had a life review. And the only time I've ever had a life review in an NDE. And what happened, my experience was it was like I skipped through time and sort of like, you know, with a rock that skips across the surface of the water, I was jumping through time. And it literally felt like that I went back and I had been brought back to another point in time of my life. And the first time I was brought back to was when I was in the white light in the plane crash near death experience. It was, it was like I traveled in time and I was there again. I was re-experiencing everything. I was feeling the love. I was feeling the bliss. I was feeling the presence of the higher power, all of it, as if I was there again. And boom! I jumped through time and then I was taken out. And then suddenly I found myself at what I call my calling mystical experience in 1990, which was a profound and beautiful mystical experience that called me to come out of the closet and specialize in counseling experiencers. And it was literally like I jumped in time and I was back in my body those many years ago, actually having that profound mystical experience. And whoop! I was jumped through time again, and I was back at about 1993, 1994. I had a very powerful and beautiful mystical experience during a meditation at a time that I was very emotionally distraught because of issues in my personal life. And I, and this, this mystical experience had been so helpful and so healing for me. And it was like I was there. I was in it again. I was experiencing everything, you know, surround sound, feeling everything of that experience. And poof! I was out and I was back in this expansive space or tunnel or whatever we want to call it. I'm again, rising upwards, upwards, upwards. And now the color of the expansive space had changed and it was no longer sort of like dark, blackish dark. It was now a very deep royal blue, you know, and a little bit like the shirt that you're wearing today, like a deep, deep royal blue. And I'm continuing to move upwards towards the light. And then, boop, 
all of a sudden, my pathway was blocked by a being of light. And this being of light was also that incredible, beautiful, royal blue color. And it was luminescent and translucent. And it had a most unusual appearance. Like I've never, ever seen anything that looks like this either before or afterwards. But this being of light appeared to be half man and half woman. So split down the middle that the right hand side appeared to be male and the left hand side appeared to be female. And it had four arms and the arms were being held in specific postures and I've seen statues since then of like dancing Shiva from yoga, a little bit like that. And that one leg upraised in sort of a dance, uh, like a dancing position, most extraordinary posture. And this being telepathically communicated with me and said, it is not your time. And just like that, I'm back in my physical body in the plane. And I don't know if my third eye was like wide open. But when I got back in my body in the plane, the plane was not out of peril yet. The engines were still racing. The pilot was still trying to get it to, to, to um, be able to, to ascend again. And people were crying and throwing up and screaming in the plane. But I could see these hands of light enveloping the plane. And then within a few minutes, the pilot managed to get enough airspeed that he was able to slowly start pulling the jet up and then he eventually circled around the airport and you know he came on the PA system well you may have noticed ladies and gentlemen I had to abort the landing it's like we may have noticed you gotta be kidding no we didn't notice that <laughs> I <know>. really <laughs> and you know just- slept right through it <laughs> this really calm voice I mean he must have rehearsed it he said uh when I, we came within view of the runway, there were coyotes on the runway. There was a pack of coyotes on the runway. So we had to abort the landing in order to not hit the coyotes and have a crash. I mean, I go into my book, the whole native shamanic symbolic significance of coyotes crossing your path and what that all meant to me later. But what I want to share is that when the plane came down and I you know, got my luggage and all that stuff, I was in an extraordinary state of consciousness. It's like my consciousness did not return to what I had been before this. I now know and then immediately knew this was a near-death experience. How I felt right after it happened is it was like I had no skin, like I was completely open, that there was no boundary between me and the world around me. Anyway, somehow in the state of consciousness, I got my luggage, went in the cab, went home, and I had a very, very deep sleep that night. And when I woke up the next morning, I found myself in a unitive state of consciousness. Meaning? I found myself experiencing when I woke up the next morning was the 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 periphery of my body had returned. So I had the experience now that I had a skin, but... I did not at the top of my head. At the top of my head, I was wide open. And not only was I wide open, but I was connected to and a part of that infinite ocean of consciousness, which is all light, which is the higher power and of which we are all a part. And 
Nobody had to explain to me or tell me or give me a name for what I was experiencing. I was a hundred percent clear of what I was experiencing. This is what they call God communion or unit of consciousness. And I was experiencing it. And that may sound grandiose to say those words, but the experience itself was not grandiose at all. In fact, it was incredibly humbling because in that state of oneness, in that state of communion, in that state of no separation from the divine source, I was acutely aware, just very aware that every living human being, every being, every soul is just as much connected as I am, that we are all connected like a billion legs on a millipede. The only difference was that most people have a veil on their consciousness that they are not able to perceive or feel and live in the experience of, ah, I'm a part of this infinite source. We don't see it. We don't feel it. That veil had been removed with me. And so I was living 24-7 in that awareness, in that oneness. How long did that last? It lasted approximately two months. Wow. And in that state of awareness, information would come to me even before I knew I needed it. Like if I needed some info, it would just, it would just be in my consciousness. I had like this phenomenal rapid fire intuition that, that, that this was the source of all information. I didn't have to read it in a book. It would just come to me. Any information I needed would come to me. And you know, there's this saying in yoga, they say, before enlightenment, chopping wood and hauling water. After enlightenment, chopping wood and hauling water. And that's, that's exactly what it was. I didn't tell anybody. I had no need to tell anybody. And I just continued on my life as normal as a mother, as a doctor, you know, paid my bills, went to my office, saw patients. But the whole time I was in this incredible state of consciousness. And when patients would come into my office, oh my goodness. As soon as I became aware of their energy field, before they even spoke to me, I would instantly know what their problems were that they were struggling with and that they wanted help with and how I could best help them. I would know this before they even opened their mouth. While I was in that incredible state of consciousness, I found that with time, my consciousness began to contract because, you know, worldly events and worldly worries and blah, blah, blah. And what I would have to do is I would have to still myself and center myself, put my consciousness here on my third eye center, focus on the divine and my consciousness would open again into that full, full unit of state. But gradually over time, as the two months progressed, it became more and more difficult. It took a greater and greater effort on my part to maintain and get back into that unit of state. And then after two months, I lost my ability to go back into that unit of state. And actually, that's what I've been seeking ever since. Yeah. All right. We're going to need to wrap up. And and this has been beautiful. And thank you again so much, Yvonne. I would like to hear one last, oh, I don't know, breath of hope. Um, you know, we're living in kind of a tough world right now. What message can you leave for everybody that'll lift them and help them have a better day today? 
Well, the message I'd like to leave people with, we've not yet had the opportunity to talk about my 2003 near-death experience where I had a traumatic brain injury and died and all that happened then. A future episode. That'll be fun to do. But I came back with a serious traumatic brain injury and I was disabled for 12 years, over 12 years with a traumatic brain injury. But on February 24th, 2016, more than 12 years after I was disabled, I experienced a miracle. I experienced a healing with an eruption of light that healed my brain. And since that time, I've been able to resume writing. I've been able to resume resume volunteering. I founded the Spiritual Awakenings International. I've written these books, including Soul Lessons from the Light, which includes the story of my miracle healing. And so the bottom line I want to leave people with after all of my experiences, and particularly after my healing experience, is you know, the lessons I've learned is that we are truly spiritual beings and that we live on after our body dies. Secondly, that the higher power is real, whether we believe it or not, and that higher power loves us with this unbelievably powerful, unconditional love. And finally, miracles do happen. So never give up hope. There is always hope for a brighter tomorrow. Brains aren't supposed to heal 12 years after they've been supposedly permanently disabled, but I was gifted with that great gift of a brain healing experience. So miracles do happen. All things are possible. Never give up hope. And the miracles can happen to everybody, can't they? Yes, indeed, everyone. We're all loved. Thanks again for listening. We hope you will share this message with family and friends. To be notified when the next episode goes live, follow this show on your podcasting app or click over to roundtripdeath.com and sign up for our email newsletter. Until then, I wish you everything good that you're looking for in this life and the next. Mm -hmm.